Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome to this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Mark Zitter, chair of the Zetima Project, of which today's guest is a member. I'm a member myself of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors and, of course, your moderator for today's program. The Commonwealth Club has suspended all of its in-person programming due to the pandemic, but is hosting a series of virtual events like this one. We encourage you to learn more about our upcoming programs by visiting our website at commonwealthclub.org. We're grateful for the generous support of our members and donors and hope you'll consider making a donation yourself. You can uh, make the donation online at our website or text donate to 415-329-4231. We'll post that number a couple more times during the program. And we also encourage you to like, subscribe, and share videos like this one with your friends and family. Uh, the Commonwealth Club is the nation's largest and oldest public affairs forum. We've got lots of great programs for you and appreciate your support. Now, it's my pleasure to welcome back to the Commonwealth Club today's special guest, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, author of the new book, Which Country Has the World's Best Health Care? Dr. Emanuel is the Vice Provost of Global Initiatives and Chair of the Department of Medical Ethics at uh, Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also a special advisor to the Director General of the World Health Organization and a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Dr. Emanuel was the founding chair of the Department of Bioethics at the National Institutes of Health. With all that said, he may be best known for his role as special advisor for health policy in the Obama administration, where he helped craft the Affordable Care Act and uh, also for his role in defending it ever since. I think I could spend the rest of our session just talking about his accomplishments, but instead, let's get right to the program. So, Zeke Emanuel, welcome back to the Commonwealth Club. It's great to be here in this different format. It is a different format. I think that I've interviewed you two or three times in the past, each at a different location, but I think most recently at our brand new building, which we're hoping to get back to soon. Yes. So, it's a beautiful building. It is beautiful, and, and uh, we hope to see it again soon. But right now, I think we can do pretty well this way, especially because you've got a lot of material uh, in this new book, Which Country Has the World's Best Health Care? And of course, by asking that question as a title, I have to ask you that question. Were you able to identify a best healthcare system in the world? And if so, we sure want to know what it is. Well, <laughs> we did not identify a best healthcare system. And we also, as we conclude in this book, uh, there's no system which, uh, you know, gets a A grade. I'm a professor, and so we're used to grading things on the ABC level. Um, uh, what we ended up doing is identifying 22 different metrics that we think are important to people, some of them important to policy wants like you and me, some of them important to the lay public like choice of doctor, uh, low drug prices, no paying at the point of care. And we you know, a lot of these are uh, more uh, uh, qualitative than quantitative. And so we evaluated uh, countries on the basis of these 22. Um, let me say that we did end up with a group of four at the top. And a lot of it, which ones you prefer, depend upon your preference for these metrics. Um, you know, so if it's really important to you not to have any money at the point of uh, care, you know, you think of Britain and Canada, um, Germany. If you really, really want more or less unlimited choice of doctor and hospital, you think of Germany, Switzerland, France. And so it really does depend on what the, what, what the final most important elements are to you. Mm -hmm. So let's make it personal. For you, if you picked a healthcare system, uh, which one would you pick? 
for yourself. Any, uh, three of the top four would be fine with me. The one I wouldn't pick would be Taiwan, um, mainly because I think it, it first of all, uh, while there is very high satisfaction in the country um, with the system, uh, because doctors end up with low pay, uh, they see 60, 90, 100 patients a day. So you don't get time with your doctor. You can forget that. You got yeah. a complaint, you want to really get delve into it, or you got chronic illness. It's not, not going to be addressed that way in, in Taiwan. Similarly, mm -hmm. the hospitals there, um, someone described them with the phrase, they tend to be more like graduate dorms than they are like uh, American hospitals. And families are expected to, to actually be uh, care providers for their loved ones while in the hospital. Very different situation than most countries and, and most places we're used to. On the other hand, Germany, Nad Netherlands, uh, uh, Norway, um, I think, uh, and, and almost any of the countries, I think, have a lot of virtues that uh, would make me uh, want to be treated there. They also all have defects. And again, I can't emphasize enough, it really depends what's most important to you. Yeah, I was struck by the similarities many of the systems have and what some of the differences are, too. Uh, but I think just in the context of today, some, a question I want to ask up front and get out of the way is about COVID-19. And I know you wrote the book before COVID-19 struck. You were able to insert a little coda at the end of it. But, uh, you know, the question I want to ask is which healthcare system is best for combating COVID-19? But I guess the real question is, is that even a healthcare system issue? Is that even a relevant question to healthcare systems? Um, so let me answer the, first, the second part first. It is a relevant question to a limited degree. Uh, but I think your intuition, Mark, is of course correct, which is we're in the acute phase of responding to COVID. And in the acute phase, it's really a public health issue, not a healthcare system issue. So it's an issue about preventing infections from spreading um, and doing what we have now called the public health measures like distancing, physical distancing, hand hygiene, wearing face masks, the non-pharmacological interventions that prevent an infection from spreading. Um, and the healthcare system is more if you have an illness, how do we manage that illness, hospital, doctor, home healthcare agency, et cetera. That's less of a fundamental uh, part of the response. And the difference between countries that have done well and poor is not about the healthcare system. It's mainly about the public healthcare system. Mm -hmm. But let me caveat that as, as Al Haig would say, mm -hmm. uh, with one uh, uh, difference and that's Taiwan. So, um, by any stretch of the imagination, Taiwan could have been a disaster, a real disaster. Uh, it's about 100 miles offshore from China. About a million of the citizens of Taiwan actually work in China, and they have scores, if not hundreds of flights, had scores, if not hundreds of flights per day with China. Could have been a disaster. Turned out, wasn't a disaster. They've had fewer than 500 cases and seven deaths in the entire island of 24 million people. Um, and that's because of three things. One, they're very suspicious of the Chinese. They learned from SARS that new infections there can really be deadly. Take them seriously. Don't poo-poo them. Two, they have a face mask culture, so they wear face masks a lot, and that helped. And we're now, we in the West who don't do that are now learning its benefits. But three, they have this health card, and the health card turned out to be very valuable. The health card, patients swipe it, the Ministry of Health knows why you're going to the doctor, knows what the doctor has done for you, and it's connected to your electronic health record. So the 
ministry was able to merge the data in the health card with the travel data, the immigration and customs data to identify patients who'd been to China, who'd been to Wuhan and who needed to be tested for COVID right away. They were also able to identify people with respiratory symptoms who went to their doctor for coughs or shortness of breath, but were negative for influenza who also needed to be tested. And this allowed them to identify cases very rapidly to isolate them and to do contact tracing so that they were able to really keep a lid on COVID uh, in a way that you know, Italy, the United States, Great Britain, other countries just haven't. And that health card with the Ministry of Health able to really use that data very effectively uh, in a public health way turned out to be a really, really major uh, uh, intervention for them. Yeah, and it struck me that of the 11 countries you studied, Taiwan, I guess Taiwan and China were struck me as the, the two maybe least developed from a modern medical standpoint overall, but Taiwan seemed to have, of all the 11, the most impressive electronic health capabilities. Yes, <laughs> we agree. And I think, you know, it's a, uh, you know, if you, if, if we went to a big health insurer, you know, uh, Blue Shield of California or a for-profit United, and we said, all right, we want to identify patients with X who've gone to the doctor and verify that that's why they went to the doctor. You know, it would take them several months, two months probably on average to get, get us that data through the claim system. Uh, where the, you know, in Taiwan, it's a, a day or two um, and much, much different uh, uh, IT system. Um, and, you know, you can say, oh, it's only an island of 24 million. Well, they've done something that even other countries of the same size, much richer, Switzerland, Netherlands, Norway, um, haven't quite been able to succeed at doing. So some of this is about political leadership and will, I suppose, overall. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And also so trust in government, trust that, you know, the government having this data, fine. Yeah, yeah, very different here. Well, there were many things in the book that I thought were uh, interesting and some surprising to me, and I thought maybe surprising some of our of our viewers. You know, probably Canada. surprising to me when I learned them. That's good. Well, actually, I have, a, I have a question for you about that in a moment, but the first thing I was going to talk about was Canada, which is... Uh, often um, held up as a model that we may want to follow in the United States. That's fine. It's, it's, it's a fairly popular health system within the country of itself. Uh, it's louder for having single payer, universal care, and so forth. A couple things surprised me, though, is you, you think in this country of universal care, of single payer care, it's not exactly single payer. And the Canadians who have the third highest drug spend in the world, the, the National Health System, uh, Insurance Scheme doesn't cover drugs. So what's that about? How, does, how do Canadians actually get the coverage and how to get the drugs paid for? That was surprising to us, too, uh, which is, you know, they've had this health insurance scheme uh, for, you know, uh, 30 plus years. Um, and first of all, it's not a national scheme, right? What's national, there are five principles and the federal government gives money uh, out to the provinces, but the provinces run it. And uh, the package of benefits varies province to province. Um, and so what you get in Ontario may not be what you get in Alberta or British Columbia. And that was surprising also. Uh, it's kind of more like Medicaid in the United States than it is like uh, Medicare in that mm -hmm. regard. And then we were surprised that, in fact, drugs were not part of the bargain way back when they passed the Canada Health Act in 1984. 
um, and haven't become part of the bargain for a whole variety of political reasons. Um, they do have relatively high drug prices, you are right. And part of what's, and so as a consequence, some provinces have covered drugs. Mostly Canadians get it by their employers buying uh, or providing this as a supplemental benefit to people or, or individuals buy a supplemental drug uh, program. Uh, but, you know, we actually downrated them on the comprehensiveness of benefits because in 2020, you really expect a country to provide drug coverage. They've come close, but never been able to pass the bill to get that coverage. And I think that's a, you know, it's a, a fascinating defect, as it were, of the system. And one I didn't know before I undertook this study. So they go through employers, employees get it through their employer. What about uh, retired people, for example, who use a lot of drugs? Yes, you have gaps, gaps in care, as they say. Yeah. So that's one place that, in fact, the government, uh, the U.S. government with uh, the Medicare drug benefit may actually have superior coverage to Canada. That was a surprise to me. Correct. In some ways. Yeah. So I so, think, you know, if you think about the ACA and the 10 uh, benefits that the ACA requires, um, you know, the usual of you know, hospital care, ambulatory care. Uh, we have mental health and substance abuse care. We have uh, um, uh, um, auditory and, and uh, um, uh, visual care for kids and stuff. Our actual, the benefit package we have is pretty comparable to the world, um, actually. And uh, we did not downgrade the United States on the comprehensiveness of the benefit given the ACA. Um, background. And I think mm -hmm. that actually uh, is one of the positives we were able to achieve uh, in the ACA is this uniform benefits package that is, you know, it's comparable to everything in the world. Well, another uh, system that's often discussed in the United States is the UK as being something very different, right? It has a nationalized system. It's universal. It's effective. It's very popular within the country. It's got broad benefits. And the biggest concerns we hear about, at least from the from the U.S. standpoint, is uh, you have to wait a long time and they're short staffed. And most Americans point to that and say, I'd never want that system with all those things. But it's very interesting point that the U.K. spends about four thousand dollars per person on health care. The U.S. spends more than eleven thousand. So let's say if, if, if you were uh, the prime minister of the U.K. and you say, I'm going to increase our spending, you know, fifteen hundred dollars a person, almost 50 percent. At which would still be at half the level of the U.S., you'd probably be able to eliminate those wait times and the staffing shortages, and you'd, you'd be spending half of what the U.S. is spending. Does that mean that the Brits are kind of getting a much better value than we are? Uh, they certainly do think they're getting a better value. There are, as you point out, there are problems, but there are also advantages. Uh, you know, <laughs> you don't pay anything at the point of care. That's a huge advantage, right? The, the, the deductibles and co-pays that Americans are becoming acutely sensitive to and really rebelling against, not in the British system. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that goes a lot. Uh, people do appreciate uh, that uh, for a, a lot. Um, on drugs, it is technically the case that people are supposed to have a small copay for drugs. It turns out that 89% of all prescriptions, there's no copay. The government somehow, you, you fall into some of these subsidized boxes. Almost everyone falls into a subsidized box when it comes to the drugs because of age, income, or chronic illness, or other things. 
Um, they also end up, because of NICE, uh, their National Institute for uh, Clinical and Health Effectiveness, they actually uh, have relatively low drug prices, and drug prices are very closely related to the health benefit. Um, so there are a lot of positives. There is the wait time thing, which is a something people bemoan. There's also the quote-unquote cleanliness of the hospital that people bemoan. Uh, but uh, as you point out, it's extremely popular in Britain. And the other thing we learned is that Britain was probably the first truly universal healthcare coverage in the world right after the war when they passed the National Health Service. Um, no one else covered the whole population, um, and the Brits were the first. I think what the example brought home for me was that we talk about comparing healthcare systems, but one issue is simply the funding. You know, if America said, we're going to fund the same level of Britain, we're going to cut our funding by 60%, we'd probably be pretty unhappy with our system, but the problem wouldn't be the system, it would be the funding. So that's an independent variable in some ways, right? I totally no. agree. And, you know, we're, you know, call it five, five and a half percent of GDP higher than mm -hmm. the next highest country. Five and a half percent of GDP, which means we're more than spending more than a trillion dollars, given our population and GDP, more than the next highest country. Um, you know, if we took that out of healthcare, just imagine what we could do with that in other sectors of society, right? Uh, as an investment in education, we can make almost all colleges free. As an investment in infrastructure, you know, you could have bridges and roads without potholes. Um, there's a lot of stuff that we forego in the United States because we're spending so much on healthcare that we could allocate to other things that would dramatically increase the quality of life. You could have parental leave that, you know, paid parental leave uh, for many months. Um, yeah. There are many, many things that a trillion dollars of good we could get in this society. And that's the way I think about the tragedy of the fact that the United States healthcare system is so expensive. Yeah, even better public health, which we could have used in, in the past. Year. Totally. Um, you brought up drugs a couple of times. We mentioned that uh, you said the UK does pretty well in drugs. Canada um, does have the, like I said, the third highest uh, drug cost in the country, but people in America still think drugs in Canada are pretty cheap. Why are drugs so much cheaper everywhere else in the world besides America? Well, so in the United States, we have about uh, just under four and a half percent of the world's population. We're 330 million, the world is 7.8 billion people. On the other hand, we spend over 40% of the entire world's drug spend, one country. Um, so we are way disproportionate to every other country. When you do this survey, you realize that every country regulates drug prices, even such quote unquote free market bastions as Switzerland regulates drug prices. Um, you know, we went through and identified eight different things that they, these countries do that we could learn from in terms of regulating drug prices. I'm not going to go through all eight, but let me just highlight a few of them uh, uh, for you. First, almost every country relates the drug price to the health benefit produced by the drug. So, you know, if you're saving lives, the price of the drug can be higher. Um, if you're just adding a few weeks to life, uh, you're not actually saving anyone's life with a cancer drug, price has got to be lower. Um, and I think that is an intuitive principle that most people ironically support. We don't have it in the United States. We let drug companies set the price. Other countries regulate it. Almost all of them use objective data. I've just mentioned the health benefit as an objective measure. 
a lot of countries like the Norway look at what other countries are charging and peg their price to the lowest three countries uh, in a basket of comparable uh, countries. Uh, they often have automatic decreases in prices. So for example, you get a novel drug, you get to charge for that drug, but if a second in that what's called class comes in, your drug price goes down. And after a certain period of time, sometime you get onto a different drug list um, and the price really drops 16 or sometimes 50%. Um, so different places have uh, used different mechanisms, but all of them cap the drug price and uh, say, this is the limit, you can't sell it for more. You know, and we identified places that really did a good job. Norway's one, Australia's another, um, uh, that we think really, they, they knew how to uh, run a good regimes. So there's a couple different ways to do it, but they all what they all have in common is the government does step in and regulate drug prices, and, and we don't. Right. <laughs> it's a fairly typically simple answer. After, <laughs> typically after a drug is approved, that it's safe and effective, then there's a second process that looks at what the legitimate pr or price maximum is, is the typical way it's done. Um, and, you know, that is, uh, you know, they have a formal process. In Germany, it can take no more than 12 months, very specific timeline. During that 12 months, drug companies can charge whatever they want, but after that 12 months, it's regulated. So that's really the, the, the political will and desire to regulate. Absolutely. We've got a couple questions about mental health care. And I know that one of the things you found that all of the systems you studied had in common was no one's really have found a sustainable and efficient way to address mental health care. The U.S. and a few countries actually have done a bit better than the rest, but still no one's really solved that problem. And it's curious because for years we've known that there's a big burden of mental illness from a health standpoint. We know there's a lot of cost uh, spillover to the physical health that we uh, that we that we spend a lot of money on. So why do you think no country's been able to solve this, and who has at least done the best at it, and how? Uh, Mark, you say we've known for a long time these relationships between mental health and physical health, and mental health and high cost. Um, I don't think it's sunk in. So um, uh, you know, the the typical response, and I think you're 100 percent right. We we specifically wanted to look at mental health because we thought it was so important. And by the way, because it was going to be of growing importance, and this was before COVID. And I think it's undeniable that it's going to be a major focus for decades to come. Um, so it was a major focus of our study. Um, and I'll, I, I, you know, the, the way w in which it's been dealt with it was best characterized when we went to Geneva, Switzerland, and we talked to the head of the, uh, of the uh, cantons, uh, health system. And he said, oh, mental health. Yes, 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 yes. We have a mental health hospital. It's over there. And he points and he says, it's on the border with France right near the prison. And that like <laughs> summarized everything you need to know about the traditional approach to mental health, mm. which is isolate it, put it as far away as it can, uh, make it socially uh, filled with the program right near the prison. Um, only recently have places begun to realize what you just said. This is you know, it's not voodoo, it's serious problem that has a physical correlate in the brain and we need to treat it like every other illness. Second, it's very expensive. It's expensive for the mental health problems, whether they're substance abuse or serious schizophrenia, but it's also expensive because people with depression or anxiety who have other illnesses, say cancer or diabetes or heart disease, 
they're harder to manage if they have those chronic illnesses and mental health conditions. So if you address the mental health conditions, it turns out their expenditures actually come down on the physical health side of the uh, range. Well, places are taking a look. We identified both uh, the Netherlands and the United States as the two best in this regard, mostly because they're trying innovative things. So in the Netherlands, um, the government basically said, primary care doctors, you're the first line of defense for common, not mild mental health issues. Things like depression, anxiety, situational depression. If you really have manic depressive disorder, then it's a time for a specialist. The primary care doctors have more than 80% of them have hired nurses that who are specifically focused on the mental health of the patients. And um, they have uh, seen appointments for mental health issues at primary care go up twofold uh, so that they really are getting people to come in for mental health issues, addressing them with this nurse specialist. Um, and it seemed to be a novel and, and useful approach. It's a kind of uh, approach that we've called the, that the experts in the United States call the collaborative care model, which is you co-locate a mental health expert with a physician uh, practice, either with primary care doctors or specialists. And that relationship turns out to be, or we suspected was important. We've obviously seen online mental health explode during COVID, but it was there before. Progressive places like Kaiser, um, or, uh, Advocate Aurora in Illinois had online support for mental health because some people don't want to go in. Some people are having an emergency crisis, can't come in, and you need to work with them virtually. Um, we thought the United States was trying a lot of novel things, and there was a lot of progress in that area. Again, not solved, and it hasn't been disseminated system-wide or scaled, as we say. Um, but we thought that we were doing more than many other countries in this space. Um, and, you know, I'm actually a believer that if we uh, uh, keep working at it uh, over the next uh, uh, decade, we will literally be able to solve this problem in the United States. Well, let's hope so. It's, 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 it was notable when, we, when I read your book and looked at, well, what do all 11 countries have in common? And one would think, uh, good or bad, uh, you know, that says something about the difficulty of changing it if no one's been able to, to, to solve it. And another commonality in that vein was, seems like every country has been stymied in eliminating wasteful or low-value care, which we know not only wastes money, but uh, often is harmful. It's actually worse getting treated if you don't need something than, than, than not getting treated at all. And also, yeah. a, a lot of the plans for improving U.S. health care and, and reducing costs are saying, well, let's get the waste out. We can all agree on that at least. But if we haven't been able to do it here and no other country's been able to do it, that's, that's daunting. So why do you think it's been so hard to eliminate or reduce low-value care? Um, I think, first of all, I think doctors everywhere um, uh, have a hard time identifying low-value care and have a hard time having the incentive to get rid of it for assorted reasons built into their systems. Um, and, you know, just to give you an example, in Germany, um, well, in most of the developed countries, not all of them, uh, the number of hospitalizations has gone down. People are using hospitals less and less. They've been able to handle a lot more procedures, whether it's cancer chemotherapy or some surgical procedures out of hospitals. And so we've had fewer hospitalizations and as a consequence, uh, handling more of the care outside. Germany hasn't been 
that advance in getting rid of hospital beds. They have 40% more hospital beds on a per capita basis in the United States. One consequence is you got empty beds, you use empty beds. Um, and we know this supply-induced demand. So they think they have a lot of unnecessary surgical procedures happening, a lot of hospital admissions that don't require hospitalization. Um, and that's a lot of waste and a lot of expense. But for a lot of political reasons internal to uh, Germany, uh, the local community doesn't want to get rid of the hospital. They fund the capital expenditure, so they're not closing the hospital, even though the national government thinks those hospitals ought to close. So these dynamics of who funds what part, how these decisions are made, they tend to be unique in every country, but they all often come to this issue of, well, you know, there's a more efficient way of doing it, but we're not doing it. So, you know, in Norway, the federal government pays for the hospital, the municipalities pay primary care. Given that circumstance, the municipalities are, you discharge patients and we have to take care of them on the outpatient basis. It's going to be more expensive for us and the savings doesn't go to us, it goes to you. So it creates some conflicts in systems. We saw that very frequently, this sort of, the financial incentives are not aligned to be more efficient. And there's a lot of economic inertia in all these countries that makes oh, it really yeah. hard to disrupt the system. Yeah. yeah. Well, one, you know, a lot of these healthcare systems were the foundations were built in the 50s and 60s. And at that time, acute care, you know, whether accidents or, you know, acute myocardial infarction, those were the focus of how you built the system. And those were done at the hospital. Now, for the 21st century, we realize it's not acute care, it's chronic care. That's the real big problem. 85 cents of every dollar in the United States is spent on chronic care. And the hospital is not the best place to deliver chronic care. And all of them are trying to transition away, but they've got these legacy systems that create a lot of inefficiency in how we deliver optimal care. Yeah, and big fi fixed assets as well. Well, we're getting a lot of questions about uh, payment systems and single payer and so forth. And something that struck me when I read your book was, uh, you know, there's so much of a, a dichotomy in people's minds between single payer and a private system. And you uh, took out, uh, you defined five different systems across that spectrum. And what I'd never thought about before is you pointed out that the United States has all five of those systems somewhere in America. Uh, you also point out, it's very interesting because you took a historical perspective for each of these countries. Where did their healthcare system come from? Sometimes going back a few hundred years. And uh, of course, that's the, the delivery system and the financing system. And you made the point that there are examples of uh, systems that uh, were um, uh, government focused that have expanded the use of private insurance. But you couldn't find examples of systems that were primarily private that moved to a single payer. So all that said, what does it mean for the U.S.? And, and I guess that maybe the backing up question, if I back up a little bit, is how important is it? What kind of a payment system we have versus the notion of getting everybody covered? You don't want to confuse uh, single payer with, uh, you know, a, a universal coverage. And so, forth. so what did you take away from your, your research on that? Uh, you really read the book. That's what I take oh, away I read with it. it. I you read every page. <laughs> um, so one of the things I would say is there, when you look at these countries, they have all different ways of getting to universal coverage. There's not one way. You can do it a lot of different ways. So Britain is the classic socialized system. The government basically owns the delivery system and pays for it. We have that in the United States. It's called the VA. And by the way, the vets are very happy. Um, so that's how we have. 
Then there's a system where the government is a single payer. It pays the bills to doctors and hospitals. People get coverage. We have that in Medicare. That's part A and B. That kind of system, you have that in Norway. You have that in Canada. Um, and that is, and, and it's relatively small part for private insurance. In most countries, it can be tiny or not at all. You know, but we have that in Medicare where we have a small part of private insurance called Medigap. And then there's a system uh, uh, where, you know, the government pays, but there's still a big place for private insurance to supplement the government. Uh, France is the leading case. They have a, a, a statutory state-based system, but it's very thin in terms of their high co-pays. And, and so 95% of the population has supplemental insurance um, to end up solving that problem. And then there's the Netherlands and Germany, where the payment goes to the government. You choose a private insurer. They call it sickness fund. And then the government pays the premium to the sickness fund. Um, and you pay a little premium. The deductibles and co-pays tend to be very small and modest. That's like our exchanges, like Medicare Advantage. Um, and then there's a completely private insurance system that's like Switzerland, and we have that too. Um, our, the fact that we have all of these is highly inefficient, creates a lot of conflict. And you know, people complain our, about our administrative costs. That's why we have high administrative costs. All this complexity um, is a real problem. And so one of the things I call for in the book or think that we could do is you can get to universal coverage using any one of these systems, um, but we need to simplify what we do. We can't have five different competing ways of paying for healthcare out there. We've got to get down to, I suggest two uh, would be the best uh, mechanism. Um, and I do think uh, we're not going to get to universal coverage unless we do that. And so I worry less, is it private insurance or single payer or, you know, the socialized medicine um, uh, arrangement? We need to just, I think we're going to, we're stuck with private insurance for the reason you mentioned. We never saw a country that had private insurance went backwards. And the main reason is, you know, first of all, the insurance companies become an interest group and they resist being put out of business. And second of all, the American public has clearly a very um, contradictory, conflicted, complicated relationship with insurance companies. There's no better political you know, applause line than bashing the insurance companies. On the other hand, we've seen from polling, tell the American public, we're taking away your private insurance company. Oh, no, 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 uh, you can't do that. Um, so my suggestion is let's make peace with that and create an exchange where like Germany and the Netherlands, you can choose your private insurance company. The government will pay uh, heavy, uh, most of the premium. Um, uh, and I think that could just be a much more efficient system if we put you know, 150 or 200 million people in that system. You can keep your employer sponsored coverage or you can have this system and that's it. That could be simpler. And certainly we've proven through the Affordable Care Act, we are able to meaningfully decrease the number of people who are uninsured. So we can extend that. We somewhere. could if we yep. simplified the system a lot. I yep. mean, look, you know, I can go on and on about all the defects we put into the Affordable Care Act. But one of them that I think is turns out to be much more complicated is to determine your eligibility for the exchanges. You look at last year's income, determine eligibility for Medicaid. You look at last month's income. 
why do you have two different standards? This makes yeah. no sense. Yeah. Uh, especially because we know those people, you know, their income fluctuates. So we should have one standard, the Medicaid standard, and it should apply throughout. Well, I've got a, a number more questions about the world's uh, healthcare systems, but uh, I can't keep down the some of the questions coming from the audience just about COVID nineteen since you've been uh, spoken on that too. So I'll just yeah. pick uh, two of the key ones are, um, you know, we're we're not so good consistently at wearing masks outdoors. If you, in case you hadn't noticed, so is there any hope on flattening the curve if we don't enforce an outdoor mask policy? And the second one too, the second question about COVID is just about the vaccine. How confident are you that we'll have something by the end of the year? And whenever we have it, how long do you think it will really take to roll out to most of the public? Well, um, I do think uh, there was uh, two days ago, I think, in the Washington Post is very revealing graph where they looked at Europe and they looked at the United States in terms of cases. And in Europe, it went up and down. And the United States was a week or two behind Europe in terms of the case rise. We've gone up, come down a little bit, and then plateaued. And what is that difference? That difference is the stringency and rigor with which the public health measures, not just face masks, but all of them together, have put, put into place and kept there. We have never uniformly put them in place across the country. We've had different locales balk at it. Now they're having big outbreaks. Um, so we've not put in physical distancing, reducing crowds, hand hygiene, consistent wearing face masks, closing non-essential businesses. We did that rigorously nationwide for a short period of time. You would have been able to get the caseload down uh, so that testing and contact tracing and isolation would have been doable. Europe has beat us and our inability to do that rigorously has been, it seems to me, um, the Achilles heel of our fight against uh, COVID-19. I do think face masks are an essential element. You know, early on, I made a mistake and, and was listening to the CDC. I'll learn never to do that again. Listen to the CDC about face masks and they were giving the wrong information. And then I did research, you know, looking. We've actually had plenty of research before COVID about the value of face masks not so much in COVID because we didn't have COVID, but in flu and in droplets and, and they work, you know, they're not, you know, cloth masks aren't as good as surgical masks and aren't as good as N95, but they're not ineffective. And if you wear a cloth mask and actually put a nylon stocking over, they're really effective. Um, and before the CDC, you know, uh, changed their mind, I was out there in the public on the TV show I hosted on MSNBC, got to wear face masks. All the time outdoors, you got to wear a face mask. Um, you know, you don't know if you're asymptomatic and transmitting. You don't know if someone's around you transmitting. And that would be really, really important. And I think we've got to establish that as the norm. We've had difficulty establishing it as the norm with a, you know, president, frankly, who flaunts it, who has, um, you know, press conferences in the Rose Garden and every one of his aides, every his son-in-law, all of those people aren't wearing them and are modeling bad behavior. So mm -hmm. I just think uh, uh, it's going to be hard for us to get the number of cases down, really get our arms around this illness, unless we actually do these non-pharmacological interventions, seriously. Mm -hmm. And what about the vaccine question? <clears throat> um, so we're about to start phase three trials of the vaccine. Uh, beginning in July, you've got to enroll 
30,000 people, 20,000 getting a vaccine, 10,000 placebos or some other vaccine. Then they have to be exposed to the virus and see if they come down with um, actually COVID-19. Um, that's going to take time. Uh, do I think we'll be able to get there? Um, I think the answer is probably yes, probably by the end of the year, early next year. But I think that there are two big issues that we have really not addressed um, that are lurking out there. We're so hungry to get a vaccine. One is, what's the durability going to be of any vaccine? How long is it going to last? One of the problems we know is, you know, there are four COVID viruses that we get colds from, and you get antibodies to them, but those antibodies don't last. They last between three months and 12 months, and then they disappear, and you can get the same COVID vaccine, about COVID viral infection. Mm -hmm. um, that's a problem. That would mean that we'd have to be re-immunized all the time, and you'd have to do the whole population. We don't do so good in immunizations for adults. Um, we do better for children, but not better for adults. And, you know, 45% of the population gets a flu vaccine. That's a big challenge. And if the, the virus, um, our immunity to the virus goes down, that's going to be a big problem. If it is less than a year, it's going to be a disaster. The second big challenge, again, that I don't think we're addressing sufficiently is how are we going to distribute the vaccine to get to 220, 240 million Americans? to create herd immunity. Um, the traditional way of going to the doctor's office, going to CVS, I don't think is gonna get you there very fast. Certainly not within a, a relatively short period of time. And I don't think we're thinking about that distribution. Mm -hmm. And one step before that distribution, um, you have to take a vaccine, put it into a sterile vial, ship the vial out. That putting it into the sterile vial sounds simple, right? Simple. Those that's called fill and finish. That fill and finish function turns out to be very complicated. The um, factories in which they, manufacturing facilities in which they do that fill and finish are a hundred times more sterile than operating rooms in hospitals, a hundred times. They take years to build. Um, and the world's capacity of fill and finish is actually quite constrained for vaccines. Um, we actually should be building a couple or three more of those uh, uh, production facilities, and yet we're not. Um, and I think that's going to turn out to be maybe the rate limiting step here. So I really worry about if even if we get a vaccine, when are you and I, non-frontline healthcare workers, going to get it? And I would think that's not going to be before Q3, Q4 of 2021. That's a waste. And of course... You're only talking about the 200, the couple hundred million Americans. There's a seven plus billion people in the world overall, and there's exactly. no guarantee that the vaccine will first be released in the U.S. Right? So we have a no, lot there of isn't. question marks about the that. The Chinese, I, I literally just before I got on the show, got a call. That, you know, the Chinese are doing their studies, and you know, some of it looks good. Well, mm -hmm. they have 1.4 billion people to get the vaccine to. Yeah, it'll be quite a challenge. Uh, let's get back to some of the uh, comparisons with the U.S. and the rest of the world. You know, uh, we do have some of the same problems as others, but, but as you pointed out, we also have some of our own, or at least we're an outlier. And the most obvious one is cost. You mentioned we spend a lot more than other countries as a percent of GDP. Um, we're just under 18%, I think, what I saw most recently. And Switzerland is the second most expensive country, just over 12%. That's a huge difference. 
And notably, those two countries, the two most expensive in the world, rely on private health insurance more than most others do. And neither country has a budget for health care to say we're not going to spend more than X. So it's just that may be more than a coincidence. Does it imply <laughs> that the only way to contain costs is to have the government as payer or to have a total budget or both? Um, I do think that a total budget, we're not exceeding this. And by the way, if you guys exceed this, we're just going to ratchet down what we're going to pay you per unit of office visits, of surgical procedures, is something other countries do. And um, they are able to keep control of the cost. Uh, Stu Altman, who uh, is one of the great health policy uh, geniuses, he's been around for 20 plus years, uh, 20 50 plus years now, he's sort of the dean of health policy experts. He says, you know why Europe pays less? Because they pay less. Because yeah. <laughs> they got a budget and they stick to the budget. And so you see in other countries, uh, Taiwan is a good example. Germany is a good example. You're spending more. You're seeing more patients. You're providing more services. That's fine. But instead of getting, you know, a hundred cents on the dollar, you'll get 90 cents on the dollar if you have 10% more uh, higher frequency of visits. Um, you cannot game this system by just increasing your volume of care. We do not have that kind of control. And I think, you know, we didn't do a comprehensive study of it. It's anecdotal or informal. The countries without a rigorous budget who have a large segment of uncontrolled private insurance, um, they have higher spending. Now, both the Netherlands and Germany, they have private insurance, but they have a budget and they keep the private insurance under the budget. Um, and I think that is a very effective technique that we need to think about in our country. And uh, without going too deep into it, because you weren't focusing on states, but both Massachusetts and Maryland in our country have some sort of a budget or a target and they seem to be two of the more successful states in really in their spending. Is that correct? Yeah, it's not just them. You, you're now seeing it in Rhode Island, Connecticut. Yes, I think I think people have cottoned on to this idea that, uh, yeah, we, we need to have a, a target. You know, my favorite target is flat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no real increase in healthcare spending. We're going to 18%, that's the limit. We're not going above 18%. You guys figure it out. There's more than enough money there. You can't say that there's not enough money once we're spending 18% of GDP on healthcare. You guys reorganize this. And I think that actually would be a very effective yeah. idea. Yeah. Well, speaking of, the, you have a whole, whole budget. You also have different components. So I've got a question I'm going to combine with one of the audience questions. Because one of the things I noticed is that physician salaries vary tremendously from country to country and not related necessarily to the income of those countries. I just looked this up in Norway, uh, Norwegian, in Norway, the, the US average income is about 142% higher than the average income in, uh, uh, I'm sorry, it's 29% higher, but uh, our, uh, in, uh, our, our income is, but, in, but our doctors are paid 142% more. Norway general practitioners average about $92,000 a year in salary, and in the U.S., the average primary care doctor gets about 223000 So there's not a correlation there, and, and it's hard to imagine that U.S. doctors are that much better. So that's one key piece of the costs. We've also been talking about drug costs. Drug costs are about 17% of our total spending. 
if all of the drug companies decided to be generous and give us all the drugs for free, we'd cut 17% of our costs. And we would still be by far the most expensive healthcare system in the world, right? So what are the other drivers of costs? Maybe doctors are one piece of that, but what's driving the other costs besides the one-sixth that's drug costs? Well, drug costs are the biggest component. Um, the excess drug costs that the United States spend is the single largest component of the difference between us and these other countries. Hospital prices are also have become not hospital prices for Medicare and Medicaid, but hospital prices for private insurance in particular have become a major uh, cost driver uh, of uh, uh, the United States healthcare system. You know, way back when, two decades ago, uh, the price difference between uh, Medicare and private insurance for a hospital day was minimal, 6% or something. And now it's over 100% difference. And so that's because hospitals have consolidated. They've got local monopolies or near mon monopolies, and they can dictate prices. That has to be regulated. The fragmented way we have insurance companies negotiate um, has, uh, you know, we might bemoan insurance companies, but it's undermined their leverage vis-a-vis -vis hospitals while we've allowed hospitals to consolidate and uh, create these local monopolies that increase their uh, bargaining power uh, with the private insurers. So hospital price is another area. Then you look at things like MRI scanners, CT scanners, big ticket items. We have very high uh, uh, prices for those compared to the rest of the world. Uh, and we have a lot of machines. We're second highest per capita in terms of machines. Um, so, you know, we've got high machines, high costs uh, per test, um, and that tends to uh, drive up a lot of uh, the pricing. Um, so, you know, it, it's a it's multifactorial, high prices for things that are used a lot uh, where we've created a situation where there's not any particular a body that can keep the price down it is a major problem. So that leads to the natural point, which is, you know, payment reform is going to be essential for keeping prices down and delivery system reform. We've done some of that. We've done a lot of it in the United States. We are innovative compared to the rest of the world in that regard. Uh, I think over the last few years, it's run out of a little steam. It needs a recharge. Um, and hopefully the next administration will really focus on that and really push not just for government programs, but also for the private sector to have these alternative payment models fully rolled out. So a few things I take away from all this is it seems that, at least from your analysis, that regulation has worked better than private sector competition so far in keeping prices down. The U.S. is one of the most, if not the most innovative healthcare system, uh, and that actually has allowed us access to innovative drugs and things maybe at a, at a better rate. But also, uh, unlike in many other industries, innovation has not succeeded in keeping prices down either or costs down either. And thirdly, I mentioned price versus cost. We know we spend a lot. Um, we haven't talked specifically about this, but it really seems like more than Americans uh, having a problem with using too much health care, the main reason we're more expensive is simply our prices are higher for drugs, hospitals and doctors. Yeah. Right. Well, when you do look um, across countries, it tends to be prices mm. within the United States a lot of it tends to be volume mm. and practice patterns. And so it depends on what you're looking at. Um, look, I, I'm a big believer, it's both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you gotta get prices down and there are plenty of places where we've got uh, either too much volume or the wrong kind of volume. 
uh, and you need to decrease uh, or shift from, say, inpatient surgical procedures to ambulatory care procedures, which are, you know, same procedure, just done more efficiently and cheaply. Or you need to switch from radiation therapy that goes seven weeks to radiation therapy that's equally clinically beneficial and is only three weeks and therefore cheaper. So I think there are a lot of these efficiency gains we could have, as well as trying to get rid of more unnecessary care um, and, and, you know, use more tertiary prevention to prevent us from even needing care. One of the issues you looked at across all 11 countries, which is sort of on the fringes of the major uh, medical system we have, is long-term care. And uh, I was interested, you found that of the 11 countries, two of them in the study, the Netherlands and Germany, have dedicated funding mechanisms for long-term care. So that means there's a way to fund it. My question for you is, is long-term care therefore more affordable in those countries? And is there evidence that people who need long-term care are more likely to get it because of those funding mechanisms? So that, that is a very good question. You know, when we, when I went to Norway and, you know, uh, at least progressive things, everything Scandinavian has got to be better. You know, it turned out, well, long-term care was not better. It really looked a lot like the United States. You know, they were getting by with bailing wire, chewing gum, and it wasn't a stable system. And they knew it wasn't a stable system, but they couldn't actually figure it out. Um, and you know, part of it is there's no dedicated funding stream. And so as a consequence, um, elderly people and uh, their families actually pay a substantial portion of the care out of pocket. Um, and this turned out to be, you know, kind of surprising. Usually you think, you know, Scandinavian countries, the government's taking up almost everything, right? Education is free. Healthcare is, you know, pretty low, if not free, but not long-term care. The two exceptions were Germany and the Netherlands, which have this private delivery system. They use private insurance companies, but they tack on to the tax that they get, a dedicated tax for long-term care. So at least on the financing system side of it, unlike all the other countries that we looked at, they have a system for actually paying for it. Um, we were particularly interested in the long-term care because of the, you know, every country is aging and the sort of what's called the silver tsunami is coming. Um, almost all the countries were trying the same approach, which is what's called aging in place, trying to keep older people in their own houses or in their relatives' houses, not move them into institutional care because institutional care is very expensive but and tends to be for very frail people people who have multiple chronic illnesses, incontinence, really advanced Alzheimer's. Otherwise, countries were actually um, uh, trying to keep them in their own apartment. And I will tell you, one of the more innovative things we saw was Germany, where you, know, you could pay to get, they paid the, the family to, they could bring in a healthcare worker to help care for the elderly person. Or even if the family did some of the care, they would get paid for providing some of that uh, custodial care for uh, the uh, seniors. And I thought that was, you know, we have, I think hundreds of billions of dollars of free care provided by families for elderly people. You know, that you probably don't wanna pay for all of it, but recognizing that people are doing this and that it's a social benefit probably is important. And Germany provides a very interesting example of that. 
Hmm. Yeah, and might might actually save money if it doesn't increase the total cost by keeping people. If out it doesn't of, begin know, sending yeah. people to institutions, and we've seen how problematic the nursing home business is, and you know, you and I know that a huge portion of the Medicaid spend, not about you know poor mothers and kids or you know young uh, uh, adults who are working retail and don't have health benefits, it goes to nursing homes for elderly. Right, um, and that's again. That's not an ideal way of providing uh, uh, long-term. One of the uh, criteria that you looked at in terms of evaluating different systems is choice. And in the U.S., we love choice. We place a premium on patient choice, insurance plans, doctors, hospitals, whatever it is. And we're willing to pay more for that choice. And we do pay more for our whole healthcare system. So my question to you is, did you find that Americans have more choice in healthcare than residents of other countries do? Absolutely not. We have less choice, by and large, than many other countries, um, and I think that might surprise a lot of people. So again, if you were looking at the places with the most choice, uh, you would look at Germany and Switzerland and uh, uh, France. R more or less unlimited choice of doctor, no gatekeeping model, so you don't have to go to a primary care doctor to go to a specialist. There are countries like the Netherlands, Norway, where you have more or less unlimited choice of primary care doctor, but there is more of a gatekeeping model when you get to specialists and hospitals. Um, and, you know, I think uh, we don't have that, you know, by and large, an employer finds an insurance company for you and you get that insurance company. You don't have a choice of insurance company. And then the insurance company, typically they might have a PPO, they have a network. You don't have unlimited choice of doctor. So it, it turns out that in most other countries, uh, choices actually better than the United States. And again, I think that was one of the surprising findings for me and probably will be for most Americans reading the book. You mentioned, we've talked about a couple of places where you were surprised. Any other places where you were particularly surprised by what you found in doing this research? Yeah, I was surprised by how recent universal healthcare coverage is in many countries. You know, a lot of us in America beat our chest about, you know, why, can't, why are we stuck at 90%? Why can't we get the universal coverage? Why do we have to be the outlier? But it turns out that a lot of countries have been late to the game. You know, just to give you an example, Switzerland, yes, by 1960, 80% of the population was covered, but to get the true universal coverage, that was 1994. Taiwan, it was 95. France, it was 2000. Um, so it turns out you, real universal coverage is, is more recent than many people think. And certainly many people included me. Uh, um, so, you know, I think that was one of the uh, uh, surprising findings as far as uh, I was concerned. Uh, we don't like to take the best of what you learn from the other systems and import them to the U.S., and that's hard to do. What are the main barriers against importing something else uh, from another country into a system in a country like the U.S.? Well, it, it, it's called, you know, the political scientists, the economists call it path dependence. You've got institutional structures it's gonna be hard to get rid of those institutional structures or dramatically change them. You can add on to them, but the underlying structure's hard. And I mentioned one of them already. We didn't notice any country that had a big private insurance system that went backwards, uh, or not backwards, went to uh, a universal coverage system and basically uh, got rid of the insurance system. You might wanna say Taiwan, but th there's a whole series of things where it, it was a different example. Um, but once you've got a relatively large insurance component going to a governmental component and getting rid of those insurance companies, not going to happen. 
And so I think you have to under, we have to think about uh, those structures and how we adapt to those structures. On the other hand, things like how we pay doctors, those things are evolving and we did see them uh, change. And I think, you know, conservation of energy, uh, don't beat your head against the wall thinking you're gonna get single payer and figure out how to change the delivery system and change payment to doctors to get them to do more of the right thing is kind of the lessons uh, I learned. One of the other lessons I think that I'm quite passionate about, I, I'm a, the son of a pediatrician. You know, we in the United States make families pay for their children and for the private insurance of their children. No other country does that. Every other country, children are seen as an investment, a social good and society should pay healthcare for them. So even in systems like the Netherlands and Germany that provide coverage through private insurance, it's the government who pays for kids, not the family who pays for kids. I think there's a lot to that. And I think we ought to think about doing that in the United States. Paying for family coverage um, is about $6,000 direct premium. Obviously the whole thing is paid for. Um, uh, that's a lot of money for the average household in the United States to pay for their kids. And I think that is, you know, that leads to a lot of inequity in our system. And we still I mean, have 4 million kids, by the way, without insurance. And I think that is also uh, uh, just an, an appalling number. Yeah, yeah. But we do have some promising, you know, we have some programs that partially take care of that that have bipartisan support. So maybe there's an opportunity there. You know, this is a little bit uh, discouraging for an American when we're looking at these different systems. Um, you know, the U.S. falls short on cost. It falls short on universal coverage. It falls short on choice. The quality is inconsistent. You know, you point out in the book, the U.S. ranks poorly in areas that are amenable to intervention, infant mortality, uh, maternal mortality, and so forth. However, somewhat to my surprise, near the end of the book, you write that because of innovation, I'm going to have this exact quote, in the next decade or two, the United States will again become one of the best systems in the world, unquote. What makes you so optimistic? Just that. We are very innovative and we're fed up with the system. And I think that combination uh, does, you know, has the possibility of permitting true reform around payment, around how we're delivering care to really uh, jack us up. You know, um, Mark, when you and I started in this, you know, more than a decade ago, it was really common uh, throwaway line. The United States has the world's best healthcare system. I don't think anyone who's responsible believes that anymore. And that is a very important change because you will not do major reform to a system if you think it's really good. You'll do major reform to a system if you think it's really broken. I think it's really broken. And I think the public realizes that. And most people in working in the healthcare system bemoan that. Second, given a lot of innovative people, I think we will come up with unique solutions and solutions that work. I think we have innovations on how to pay doctors. We have innovations on how to deliver chronic care management. We have innovations on mental health. I think those need to be scaled. We need to winnow out the best ones of them, but I, that's what gives me optimism. Uh, you know, being a pessimist, being a skeptic, health policy people are famous for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I think it's easy to be the skeptic about it because it's hard to change a system. On the other hand, I think people have become fed up with what we've got. And I think that will be the propulsion we need uh, with, uh, to, to really change the system. And I think 
I wouldn't be surprised if the next administration has a big window of opportunity, assuming the Senate flips. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because we actually, unfortunately, I have time for just one more question. And uh, here's the one that I had in mind to ask. I'll ask it. And this is really, how do you think the U.S. healthcare system will change following this year's election? That's one question, but I want you to give me two answers. One, for the status quo, if that holds, and another, if the Democrats win both the White House and the Senate. What do you think will happen in U.S. healthcare in those situations? Well, if we have the status quo, you won't get any reform. Uh, Donald Trump has been uh, quite clear, uninterested, actually interested in repealing the ACA. You won't repeal the ACA because the House is you know, going to stay Democratic, um, but I don't think you're going to do any innovations, and they're going to try you know, assorted things like they did in the last four years to nibble away at it, you know, change the uh, open enrollment periods, uh, make all sorts of rules like uh, work requirements, do whatever they can to undermine the uh, uh, program. Um, I, you know, I don't think there's going to be a lot of success with that, frankly, but y you're not going to get progress. The flip side is, I think if the Democrats come in, you know, what's the top of the agenda? Some drug price regulation, I think, is going to be the American public going to expect it. Some major reorganization of the payment system, because with 14 states not expanding Medicaid, you have no path to universal coverage. You have to do something different about that if you're actually going to get to universal coverage. And I think that opens up possibilities for more extensive reforms. You might even get hospital price regulation. Um, so I think there are a lot of possibilities uh, to think creatively uh, if the Democrats do get in. Um, I think they also learned their lesson negotiating, trying to make it a bipartisan bill with the Republicans, probably of no use. And so I don't think they'll waste that much time with uh, that. And I think they'll focus in on what uh, is likely to be the biggest bang for the buck. Well, we'll have to have you back at that point and see what, what things are looking like then. I want to make a big, uh, give you a big thanks, Zeke, for joining us. And a thanks to Thank uh, Dr. I'll do this formally. A thanks to Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, the author of Which Country Has the World's Best Health Care? And we encourage all of our viewers to order your copy today through your local independent bookstore. We also want to express appreciation to all of our viewers. Thank you for coming and thanks for your wonderful questions. I'm sorry I couldn't get to all of them. Commonwealth Club has a wide range of virtual programs, both about healthcare and many other topics. So please visit our website for more information. I'm Mark Zitter, and now this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.